2: Good evening, children of the night, and happy Thanksgiving to our American listeners. As promised, we're kicking off this week with another contest. This is your chance to bring home your own digital copy of Smile. Starring Sosie Bacon, it's been called haunting and terrifying as hell by critics. We had an interesting discussion going on the podcast staff channel the other day about it, and as I said there, for me, I think it was the sense of creeping dread that really sold the film. The sound design, too, was something that really stood out. Overall, the opinions were wide-ranging, but for me, I truly enjoyed it. You can buy Smile now on digital and dive even deeper with over an hour of heartbounding bonus content, which includes the original short film that started it all. Or, stay tuned to our social media this weekend for your chance to win a copy of your own. That's something that's sure to put a smile on your face. A huge thank you this week to Orion D. Hegra for joining the small but elite group of top patrons. Words might be our thing, but they don't seem quite sufficient to express the gratitude I feel. So, thank you again, Ori, and to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Now, I'm sure you probably tune a lot of these Patreon pitches out by now. They're not my favorite part of the show either, but they are essential to helping our little show survive, thrive, and grow. As much as I'd love to say it's been a steady, rising line of support, the truth is, there's a regular churn to our support on Patreon. Of patrons joining and leaving, depending on people's situations and their changing interests. Which means, we are always in need of new supporters. We set some goals for the podcast early on after undocking from the District of Wonders a few years ago the biggest of which was paying narrators. I'm proud to say we reached that goal last year, but we still have so far to go. Next up, increasing our rate for authors, with the hope of one day being able to offer full professional rates. We've got some steps to go before then, but to put things into perspective, this podcast is kept afloat on the generosity of less than half of 1% of our listeners. If everyone who listened to this show supported for even a single dollar each month, we'd be able to pay writers, narrators, and staff full professional wages and do so much more, giving us access to even more content and talent than ever before. And with every dollar going back into the show, that only benefits you as a listener. So if you've ever felt like your contribution wouldn't make a meaningful difference, let me assure you, it absolutely would. So very much. Even signing up for a single dollar a month. Or take advantage of our ad-free feed for as little as $3 a month. And the perks just keep going up from there. You'll also get extra chances and better odds to win with our contests. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Truly, if we even managed to get a full 1% of our listeners supporting the show, it would be game-changing for us. And for you, the listeners. Again, that's patreon.com slash tales to terrify. Alright, now let's get a delightfully dark taste of what horrors your support summons. Time for some fiction. We have one longer tale for you this evening, which comes to us from Rami Unger. Rami Unger is a novelist from Columbus, Ohio, specializing in horror and dark fantasy. He has published four books, The Quiet Game, Snake, Rose, and The Pure World Comes, and has a fifth, Hannah and Other Stories, due out in 2023. When not writing, Rami enjoys reading, following his many interests, and giving people the impression he's not entirely human. Children of the Night, join me for Rami Unger's The Dedication of the High Priestess, a Tales to Terrify original.
1: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact
0: The parking lot around Chase Dragon's artist space is full of fancy cars, the kind with clean lines and shiny exteriors. Standing next to my mom's old gray beat up hatchback, I feel underdressed, even though I'm in the nicest dress I've ever owned. The feeling goes away, however, as my mom takes my left hand, Millie Kreutz takes my right, and we move towards the front door. Instead, I feel like someone on a red carpet at an award show as all eyes turn to us. Like we're stars. And we are stars. Or Millie and I are, as well as anyone here dressed in a sparkly new ballet costume. We're the models and the inspiration for Mr. Dragon's newest exhibition, Dreams from Lost Carcosa. He used ballerinas and danseurs from schools and companies across the city to inspire his latest work, a series of paintings based on a play I'd never heard of until recently. I myself am in three of his paintings, the most of any dancer. I've kept this secret, however. I don't want anyone to be jealous of me. At least not yet. Of course, there's a chance nobody will have time to be jealous of me. Being a model for Mr. Dragan, who is considered one of the best artists in America, is a big deal. Like career-making big. Who has time to be jealous with all that going on? He only uses the best dancers. Strawberry Fields, an older girl at my ballet school who modeled for Mr. Dragon's new show as well, told me the other day. He says they have to have that special something for me to want to work with them. And if he chooses to work with you once, that's good. But if he chooses to work with you more than once, it's even better. It could mean big things for your career. You could even go on to become a principal dancer. The idea of becoming a principal dancer excited me. It still excites me, which is why I've had such a hard time keeping my mouth shut about the paintings. But they'll see soon. And then we'll all be principals together. Speaking of which, that's another thing to look forward to. The paintings. None of us have seen the paintings we're in. We just know we're in them. Mr. Dragan used a camera to take photos of us practicing or posing in different studios and then used those pictures as inspiration for his paintings. No model has seen what art he made from us, so we're all excited to see the results. We enter Mr. Dragon's artist space, which is really a warehouse which serves as his home, studio, and gallery. The first room, usually a waiting area for models and clients, has been transformed into an event space where adults in fancy suits and dresses mingle, drink champagne, and talk. Waiters bustle around bringing in new drinks and snacks while taking the used plates and glasses through a side door. Photographers walk around taking pictures, their cameras making loud clicks as they document everything. And scattered through the room are the models, who can be picked out by their distinctive clothes. The male danseurs all wear purple and silver jackets and white tights, while the girls' outfits are determined by age— Twelve-year-olds and under wear frilly dresses with puffy sleeves and tutus made of many layers of tulle. Girls 13 through 18 wear white pancake tutus and bodices decorated with gold trim. And anyone 19 and older wear red floor-length gowns with black flowers on their left shoulders. All these outfits were designed and paid for by Mr. Dragon, and he had each of us fitted for them. It's a neat marketing trick, my mom had said when I received mine. I didn't know what she meant by that, but didn't bother saying anything. All I care about is the dress. I love it. I'm 12, so mine came with puffy sleeves and a thick tulle tutu. It's more beautiful than any dress I've ever worn, and I feel lucky just to wear it. The fact that I get to keep it after tonight is just icing on the cake. As we walk across the atrium, all eyes turn to stare. On my right, Millie is bashful. I'm not sure I like them looking at all of us like that. It feels weird, like we're zoo animals. I can see where she's coming from. It's different than when we're doing a recital or if we're picked to participate in a professional company's production of Nutcracker. Then everyone's eyes are on us because we're part of the show. They're taking in our costumes, the stage, the music, and of course the dance, watching it all come together to make something brilliant. Here, though, they see the models just the models. And I think I have an inkling of an idea of what my mom means when she says our outfits are a neat marketing trick. Even so, I squeeze Millie's hand and flash her a reassuring smile. Don't worry, I say. We'll have fun tonight, and soon we're going to see ourselves in paintings that'll be around forever. She's right, says my mom. That Degas artist I told you about has his stuff in museums all over the world. His dancers were immortalized, and one of them was only 14. You two are 12, so you're already ahead of her, and who knows? Perhaps someday you'll be admired in museums all over the world. Millie smiles a little at this. She's still nervous, but it's not as bad as before. Me, on the other hand, I'm loving this. I bask in the stairs. They're going to see Chase Dragon's new star, Anastasia Hummel, soon to be the greatest ballerina in the world, and this show is only the beginning. I can feel it. I'm going to go on to do great things. Annie! Millie! From across the room, Strawberry Fields run dances to us in her white and gold outfit, her legs propelling her on the bottoms of two bright pink point shoes. Behind her, Connor Wade, a dancer in her year, dressed in a purple and silver jacket, follows with a glass of Diet Coke in each hand. Strawberry comes to a stop in front of us, her short blonde hair hanging loosely around her ears. You two are so cute. Hi, Miss Hummel. Hi, Strawberry, Millie says, forgetting her earlier anxiety. You look really pretty. Oh, thank you. Come here. Strawberry pulls us both into a hug, which we gladly accept. While people often laugh at her name when they first meet her, no one laughs when they get to know her, or when they see her dance. Strawberry is the best dancer in our school, and the one most likely to succeed as a company dancer. Not only that, but she's really nice and loves us younger girls like little sisters. For that, we love her back, and getting complimented and hugged by her is as wonderful as being chosen as Mr. Dragon's models. Maybe even better. As the hug breaks apart, Strawberry takes a glass from Connor. He looks at us and says, it's true, you know, you two are very cute. I didn't know you were in one of the paintings, Connor, I say. We were in one together, Strawberry explains, wrapping her arm around Connor's free one. Mr. Dragon saw us during pas de deux practice and asked us to model for him. Are you two together now? Millie asks suddenly, like boyfriend and girlfriend. The blush that appears on their faces is all the answer we need. About time, I mutter, thinking of the hundreds of whispered remarks that Connor and Strawberry would make a cute couple. If only they knew how long people had been watching and waiting for them to acknowledge their feelings for one another, their faces would go blood-red. Connor coughs. Uh, anyway, are you excited? We can't wait to see what the paintings look like. Yeah, Millie and I nod our heads. Us too. Isn't it weird that he doesn't show you the final painting, though? My mom asks. I mean, you come in and let him photograph you for hours and hours until he gets the right shot. Shouldn't you see what he paints based on that photo? Who knows how these artists work, Strawberry comments. They're all a little weird. Dragan had us do four different pas de deux sequences together before he was satisfied. We don't even know which one was the one he liked best, let alone what shot of us he used for his painting. What did he have you do, Millie? Millie shrugs, a little embarrassed. Not much. All I did was lie on a table and pretend to be asleep. See? Odd. What did you do, Anastasia? Connor asks. Um, a couple of things. She's in three different paintings. Mom blabs. Three pairs of eyes turn to me in surprise and awe. Three? I blush, embarrassed now myself. Surprise! To my relief, everyone is enthusiastic and congratulating me. Millie even hugs me, which makes me happy. She's my best friend at ballet school, and I would hate it if she didn't want to be my friend anymore because I was chosen for three paintings. What did he have you do? Strawberry asks after giving me one more hug. Any idea what he painted of you? I shake my head. I'm as in the dark as they are. The photos for the first painting were taken in the studio at my ballet school. Mr. Dragon took photos of me putting on my dancing shoes and warming up at the bar. Then he said he was good and packed up. It was so abrupt that I thought I'd done something wrong and that I'd never see him again, let alone make it into one of his paintings. But then Mr. Dragon called my mom and asked me to come into the school for some more photos. Excited, we drove over to the school where Mr. Dragon had me stand on the stage in the school's small auditorium and do various turns. Just turns turns to the left and right, turns with my arms up and turns with my arms down, turns with one arm up and one arm down, turns with one leg out and turns with my leg in the air. It was more exhausting than I thought it would be, and I was glad when it was over. Finally, I was asked to come to Mr. Dragan's artist studio for the final painting. Mom drove me over on a Sunday, and Mr. Dragan gave me a beautiful yellow dress with matching point shoes to wear. Just like the dress I'm wearing now, it fit me exactly, and Mr. Dragan paid for it. I was enchanted by that dress. The bodice looked like it was made of armor, like the kind Wonder Woman wore in one of her movies, and the tutu had all these beautiful shapes and symbols embroidered into the muslin fabric. And when I put it on, it felt perfect. Not just like it fitted me, but like this dress and I were made for one another. And when I danced in it, that feeling multiplied times a hundred. And I danced for hours that day, taking various poses and positions as Mr. Dragan took dozens and dozens of photos. Sometimes I was lying on the floor, sometimes I was holding a certain pose, and for one, I just stood on point and spun slowly around with my arms arced above my head. It seemed to go on forever, me dancing and Mr. Dragon taking photos. I didn't mind. I was in my element. Dance has always come easy to me. Sometimes it's like something is moving through me, or like the steps are dancing me rather than I'm dancing them. In those moments, dance stops being physical movement, a matter of repetition and training your body to follow certain steps someone else has laid out for you. Instead, it's a magical connection to something bigger. I stopped being Anastasia and through dance, become that something bigger. I especially felt that way during the final photo shoot. Like I was meant to be there, in that yellow dress, dancing for Mr. Dragon. Like it was destiny. I tell all this, except for my personal thoughts about dancing and destiny to Strawberry, Connor, and Millie, who stare at me in amazement. Mom, who is there for all the photo shoots, just nods along as I tell the story. When I finish, however, all four of them are just as curious as I am about what sort of art the modeling sessions led to. When do you think we'll be allowed to see the paintings? Millie asks. As soon as Mr. Dragon walks through that curtain, Strawberry points at a black curtain along one wall. Beyond the curtain is the gallery, which I didn't get to see last time I was here. He'll walk through, welcome us, and then everyone gets to go in and see the exhibition. At least that's what I've been told. In the meantime, Connor suggests, how about we all go around and see who else is here? We do just that, Millie and I following the two older dancers while Mom goes to get herself a drink and talk to another mother she knows. And while we wander and talk, we have fun. There are plenty of people we recognize from our ballet school that we say hi to, as well as a few we know from other schools. And there are plenty of adults we don't know who introduce themselves to us and whose names we promptly forget. And there are dancers from the local companies here who take the time to speak to us, which makes us nearly faint with happiness. To us, these men and women are almost living gods and goddesses, so getting to be in their presence and have them talk to us makes our nights. As we finish talking to a dancer who we saw play Giselle last year, we hear the click of high heels approaching. We turn towards the clicking, expecting to see my mom come to check on us. Instead, a beautiful woman with luscious wavy hair and a big black camera makes a beeline right for us. You two are so beautiful, she says to Millie and me. You are too, I reply, feeling a little overwhelmed by her looks and enthusiasm. Millie says nothing eyeing the expensive-looking camera hanging by a strap from the woman's shoulders. I stare at it, too, thinking it looks very out of place with this woman's peach-colored suit and skirt. All the other photographers are dressed in sweaters or casual jackets, so why is she one who's just dressed up so nicely? Or is she a guest with permission to take photos? Thank you, sweeties, says the woman, extending a manicured hand. Mara Klinkscale, art journalist and critic, I'm covering this event for the post. Um, Millie Kreiss. Anastasia Hummel. We shake her hand and I notice her eyes light up as I say my name. Can I get some photos of you two, she asks holding up her camera, for my story. We say okay, first posing with our arms around each other's shoulders, then with our arms above our heads and our feet in second position, and finally with our hands curved in front of us in bras à repos, while we smile shyly. Miss Klinkscale takes several photos, her camera whirring with every press of the button. Beautiful, she says, her lips speaking the word like she's enjoying a piece of candy. I'm very glad I found you both. From what Chase tells me, you two were the models of his favorite pieces, especially you, Miss Anastasia. He says you were part of his most important piece. You know Mr. Dragon, Know him? Oh, honey, there's not an artist in this town who isn't successful without me. Though I'm sure Chase would have gotten popular without my help. He's such a talent, that man. Anyway, I look forward to seeing the paintings you posed for. I'm sure they'll be the highlights of his Carcosa series. Just then, there's a wave of whispers through the crowd. We all turn to the source, which is the black curtain in front of the gallery. Standing by it is Chase Dragon, his face beaming. He gives a dramatic bow to the room, and the room responds with thunderous applause. He bows again and then holds up his hands for silence. The clapping dies immediately. "'Welcome, everyone,' Mr. Dragan says, raising his voice. "'I'm so glad to have you all here tonight. "'Now before we open the gallery, would all my models please come to the front?' A murmur passes through the crowd. Millie and I glance at each other before taking each other's hand and making our way up to the front. Mr. Dragan greets every model who appears at his side, some especially the men he shakes hands with. A lot of the professional ballerinas give him kisses on the cheek. He hugs a lot of the younger models, including Strawberry and Millie. When he gets to me, however, he picks me up and whirls me around in his arms before setting me down again. I scream in surprise, but then the room is applauding again, and I forget my shock. Instead, I smile to the crowd and curtsy, holding the skirt of my tutu out with one hand daintily. More applause, and I wonder if anyone even heard my scream. The noise dies down again, and Mr. Dragon continues with his introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very excited for you all to see Dreams from Lost Carcosa. This show was originally inspired by a play I saw in France when I was a boy, The King and Yellow. My older sister was a student at a dance and theater school there, and they put on the play. That play inspired and set me on the path of artistry that has led me here today. It also had many dance sequences, which gave birth to my love of ballet. Recently, I was able to get an English copy of the play and was inspired all over again. The series of paintings you'll see tonight are my tribute to The King in Yellow, which, if tonight's show is successful, I hope to finance a production of here in America. Another round of applause. It dies again, and Mr. Dragon continues. I've divided the gallery into five rooms—white, blue, green, red, and finally, yellow. These rooms correspond with the story of the play— as do the paintings displayed within. I encourage you all to take your time and enjoy each of the rooms. Photography is allowed, but no flash and no videography. Should you be interested in purchasing a painting, please see my assistant Mr. Castigain after the show. Nearly all the paintings are for sale. You may also ask him for a copy of The King in Yellow, which I've taken the liberty of printing and providing at no extra cost for your benefit. Now, without further ado, please enjoy Dreams from Lost Carcosa. The black curtain pulls back, revealing a stark white room with paintings hanging along the walls. At once, models and guests alike surge around Mr. Dragon to get in. Millie and I move to join them, but then we feel a pair of heavy hands on our shoulders. Mr. Dragon smiles down on us and says, Wait for your mother, young ladies. As if summoned, Mom appears beside us. That was fantastic, Annie. Did you plan that with Mr. Dragon? It takes me a moment to realize she means Mr. Dragon picking me up and spinning me around. Before I can answer, however, Mr. Dragon says, Thank you for coming, Taylor. You have been such a huge help to this project. Oh, don't mention it, Mom replies. Thank you for the opportunity you've given my daughter. To all the dancers, actually. Happy to. I think the children from her school gave me the best works in the show. In fact, the ones featuring Anastasia are among the ones I don't intend to sell. Really? I say, astonished. Mr. Dragan beams at me. Really? In fact, remember the painting you helped me with where you wore that yellow dress? That painting is in the yellow room, and it's the only painting there. It's not just the most important painting in the show. It's probably my greatest masterpiece." There's no way I'm selling that. Congratulations, Annie, says Millie, though I notice there's a slight jealous tone in her voice. That's a big deal. Oh, I'm so proud of you, sweetie, Mom gushes, hugging me. You should be, says Mr. Dragon to my mother. From the moment I saw Annie, I knew your daughter was something special and I would do just about anything to make her part of the show. Now how about we all go inside, hmm? I'm sure you're curious to see the paintings you modeled for. Mom, Millie, and I agree, and while Mr. Dragan goes to speak with some of the other guests, we step into the White Room. The paintings in the White Room are magnificent. They all portray scenes straight out of fairy tales and fantasy worlds. One depicts a professional ballerina I spoke to earlier this evening riding on a unicorn, a second shows a girl a few years older than me in a puffy outfit sitting on an ornate bench surrounded by flowers and fairies. A third shows four danceurs with angel wings sprouting from their backs, flying through the sky past temples and palaces floating on top of clouds. All the paintings are painted with soft colors and strokes, as if the brush pulled them from dreams. Yet the subjects are so full of life, I can imagine the figures coming to life and stepping out of their frames. It's no wonder Miss Klingscale has such a high opinion of Mr. Dragon. He's just that good. As we walk around the room, we come across a crowd centered around one particular painting. Spying a gap between the adults, Millie and I manage to slip to the front of the crowd. Above our heads hangs a painting of Strawberry and Connor only instead of wearing their practice outfits, Strawberry's wearing a ballet-inspired wedding dress and veil, while Connor wears a flashy outfit resembling something you might find in a sci-fi movie rather than a ballet. Nevertheless, they both look magnificent, as Connor holds Strawberry up in the air by her hips. You can see the love they feel for one another, and the way the sunlight shines down upon Strawberry in the painting makes her look heavenly. The title of the piece is Born to Love One Another, Millie and I look around for Connor and Strawberry, wondering what they think, but can't find them. We decide they're probably too embarrassed to even be seen right now and slip through the crowd back to Mom. After seeing and falling in love with all the paintings in the white room at least once, we head to a black curtain in the back, the entrance to the blue room. All the paintings are amazing, Mom says. I haven't seen either of you yet, though. Maybe we're in the next room, I suggest. I glance at Millie and see the excitement and anticipation I feel reflected in her face. We slip through the curtains to the blue room. As the name suggests, the walls are painted blue, and the lights above us are blue as well. Normal light bulbs shine down on the paintings in this room, however, allowing people to see what colors they're actually painted with. Immediately, we notice a couple of differences in this room besides the color. For one thing, all the paintings here are of ordinary scenes, students practicing at bars, dancers doing stretches, people walking down streets or hallways in dancing clothes, etc. Not only that, but there's music playing in this room. It's operatic music, but the singing's in English, and the woman singing sounds really sad. Along the shore, the cloud waves break. The twin suns sink behind the lake. The shadows lengthen in Carcosa. Strange is the night where black stars rise and strange moons circle through the skies, but stranger still is lost Carcosa. What song is this? Millie asks. I don't know, I say, feeling uneasy for some reason. I've never heard it before. It's Casilda's song. We all jump as Mr. Dragan appears beside us. The King in Yellow is a play with song and dance numbers. This is one of the best songs in the musical, Casilda's Song. There's no known English recording, so I had one sung and recorded just for tonight's show. Wow, says Mom. You really went all out for this. Mr. Dragan chuckles and goes to talk to Miss Clinkscale, who's perusing a painting in the back of the blue room. We circle around the room and pretty quickly spot a third difference about the blue room. All the dancers in the paintings look sad. Most look like they've just received bad news. Some appear on the verge of tears, and a couple are crying as they practice Y scales or do on stage. It really is the blue room, I think, moving from one painting to the next. But why are they all so sad? Annie, look, it's you. I gaze up at a portrait of me that's twice my height. It's the first painting, the one based on the photos Mr. Dragon took of me warming up in the dance studio. In the painting, I'm wearing a black leotard and light blue tights. My body faces the bar, and my head is turned toward Mr. Dragon's camera, towards the people standing around my painting. I don't look sad in this painting, though. Instead, I look lost in thought. Did I look that way when Mr. Dragan was taking pictures of me? I don't remember. I check the title. The High Priestess As Yet Unaware. My eyebrow arches. Why am I being called the High Priestess? And what am I supposed to be unaware of? Some of the people around my first painting are looking from it to me and then back to the painting, as if comparing our expressions. Feeling self-conscious, I pull Mom and Millie out of the blue room and into the next room, the green room. My other paintings and Millie's painting aren't in the blue room anyway, so why stick around? As expected, the green room is lit with green lights. Unexpected, however, are the paintings. They feature the fantasy and fairy tale settings of the white room, but the people in them are all terrified and strange. Their limbs are longer than regular people's, and they all look like they're waiting in fear for something terrible to happen. I'm scared. So are Millie and Mom, as are a lot of people in this room. We all resemble the people in the paintings. Like we all know a monster out of a horror movie is nearby, we just don't know where. The whole time, Casilda's song is still playing in the background. And it's even creepier here than it was in the Blue Room. We stay in the Green Room just long enough to confirm that neither Millie nor I are featured in any of the paintings here, before moving to the Red Room. The moment we step inside, I wish we hadn't. The red room is the color of fresh blood, and the walls, floor, and ceiling are covered in lines and lines of black letters. At my feet I read, You, sir, should unmask. The stranger, indeed. Casilda, indeed, it's time. We have all laid aside disguise but you. I wonder if they're lines from Mr. Dragon's play, and then decide that I don't care. I just wanna get out of here. I hear a sob beside me. Millie points at a painting on the far wall. Look, she cries, it's me. We go over. Indeed, it is Millie, but it's the most horrible thing I've ever seen. In the painting, Millie lies on her back, hovering in the air against a white background. She's wearing a white dress, but the front has been stained by a geyser of red paint spewing from her belly. Underneath her, more red paint flows towards the bottom of the canvas like a waterfall. In horror, I realize it's meant to depict blood. I glance at Millie's face in the painting. It's the face of a corpse. I glance at the real Millie. She's crying against my mother's side, refusing to look at the monstrosity anymore. I inspect the painting's title. It says, Fate is Cruel. I get a bad feeling and want to run. Instead, I slip away from Mom and Millie and run through the room, looking for my second painting. In every portrait, I see scenes out of nightmares. A little boy being crushed under falling rubble thrown down by giant bat-winged demons. A man and a girl embracing inside a coffin occupied by a rotted skeleton their blood pooling at the bottom of the casket as the skeleton wraps its arms around them for a group hug, a woman screaming as her internal organs are harvested by surgeons with bulbous black eyes and insectile appendages around their fang-filled mouths. Casilda's song continues playing throughout the Red Room, and I feel like I'm in a horror movie, the kind I'm not supposed to watch because I'm too young. According to the older kids at school, people always die in horrific and gory ways in those movies, and good rarely triumphs over evil. I come to a stop as I recognize the figure in another painting. It's me, once more painted on a canvas twice my size. It's the second painting, the one where I had to turn a million times for Mr. Dragon to get the right shot. In this one, my hand is outstretched and my leg lifted in the air as I turn. I'm wearing the yellow dress that I wore for the third painting for some reason, and in the far left of the painting, the direction I'm turning to, a dark figure is approaching. I check the title of this one. It reads The High Priestess Accepts Her Fate. I study the painting again and then glance at the other people in the room. There are fewer guests in here than in the previous rooms but they all look as scared as I feel. I look once more at the second painting of me, and then my eyes fall on a black curtain. The entrance to the yellow room. I gulp. Everything in me is screaming for me to turn and run, to not see the final painting that I modeled for, to leave this exhibit and forget I was ever part of it. But then I remember Mr. Dragan saying the third painting of me is the only one in that room, and it's the most important piece in the show, his masterpiece. And like that, my feet carry me through the curtain. The yellow room is completely black. My eyes take a moment to adjust to the darkness before I spot neon yellow lights on the floor lighting a path forward. Slowly, I make my way along the path. When I reach the end, there's a mechanical clunk, and the world becomes blinding. My eyes adjust again, and I see four stage lights shining on a black canvas that's 20 feet tall and 20 feet wide. Painted against the black canvas in yellow paint is a symbol I don't recognize. Or at least I shouldn't recognize it. But for some reason, I feel like I've seen this symbol before seen it my whole life. It's been a part of me since I was born, and I'm only noticing it for the very first time. I shiver, feeling both terrified and exhilarated, my blood pounding in my ears as I take it in. The symbol resembles a crown and a tree and a spider all at once, with a great eye staring out of the center. And my body is what forms the lines of the symbol, Every line is a drawing of me in the yellow costume, my body and hair painted yellow as well, and each me is in a different pose or position. Even the circular iris in the eye in the center of the symbol is me doing a pirouette while looking up towards the camera, looking up towards the viewer, looking up towards myself, I stare at the multiple yellow versions of me making up the symbol, as well as the symbol as a whole, before I look away. That feeling of familiarity hasn't gone away, and it scares me. I then notice the name of the painting scrawled at the bottom in curly writing. The dedication of the high priestess. Suddenly I have the feeling I'm not alone in the yellow room anymore, even though no one else is in here. The stage lights show me that I'm alone, and yet I'm certain someone big and terrible and evil is waiting just out of my line of sight, waiting to take me. I run. The lights go off, but I don't stop. Instead, I crash through the curtain, stumble to the floor, get up, and find Mom and Millie. Mom opens her mouth to ask me where I've been, but shuts it as she sees my face. Instead, she takes my hand and steers me and Millie out of the red room and straight through the green, blue, and white rooms. We only stop when we're in the atrium again. I fall to my knees, choking on my sobs. Mom holds me and asks me what's wrong. I can only answer with three words It was horrible. You saw the yellow room? Strawberry and Connor appear before us. Both look like they're going to be sick and it's obvious from her smudged makeup that Strawberry's been crying. She hiccups as she continues. I know they were just rooms and paintings, but they were so awful. And that yellow room. How could he make you so scary, Annie? I mean, it was just a bunch of images of you posing and put together into a shape, and yet it was the most terrifying thing I ever saw. I... I, I just... She breaks off and sobs. Connor holds her, looking like he wants to cry himself. We hear a familiar clicking behind us and turn to see Miss Klinkscale walking out of the white gallery with Mr. Dragon. Both have wide smiles on their faces. An absolute triumph, Miss Klinkscale is saying. Such an exploration of the loss of innocence and the slow annihilation of the world through the eyes of humanity. And that final painting of yours is magnificent. I'm going to be thinking of that one for the rest of the night. Well, that was the idea, Mr. Dragan replies. They both laugh. You! Mom bolts up and crosses the atrium towards Mr. Dragon. Even from behind, I can imagine the volcanic rage decorating her face now, and I'm shocked to see that Mr. Dragon is unfazed by it. How dare you! Mom shouts as she reaches him. If I had known, if any of us had known what you were going to be painting, do you think we would have let you take those photos? You have traumatized these children tonight, sir. I hope you're happy. Why, if I weren't a pacifist, I would. On the contrary, Miss Hummel. Mr. Dragan interrupts, still grinning like a maniac. I couldn't be happier. The show is having its intended effect, and I think Anastasia is going to find her life profoundly changed for the better now that she's seen herself in the yellow sign. Mom's shoulders heave up and down, and I brace for her to scream some more. Instead, she turns around, stalks back to Millie and me, and wishes Strawberry and Connor a good night before taking us out of the building into her car. Along the way, she mutters about contacting the ballet school, the authorities, lawyers, and anyone else she can think of. Millie and I are silent, too busy thinking of the horrors we just experienced, the horrors that have now become a part of our souls. The drive to Millie's house is silent, When we get there, I don't give Millie any sort of goodbye. Instead, I just watch Mom take her up to the front porch and explain to her father and older brother, both still dressed in their police uniforms, what happened at the gallery. Both their faces turn into deep frowns, and Mr. Kreuss says something I can't hear. Still, I know what it's about. After all, Mom did say she would contact the authorities. When we get home... Mom tells me to go straight to bed and to throw out the dress Mr. Dragan had me wear to the show tonight. I change into my pajamas and take the dress to the garbage can, but stop. I glance down and let my fingers run over the bodice and the tutu, the fabric whispering against my skin. It's the most beautiful dress I've ever owned, and despite what I experienced this evening, I can't imagine parting with it. Then I remember those paintings those horrible paintings, that awful symbol, and Mr. Dragan grinning like a madman as he tells my mom that my life will change for the better now that I'm in that painting of his. And I throw it into the garbage can, stuffing it deep into the plastic bag and throwing random bits of garbage over it and hiding it. As I slip into bed and think again of the dress I just threw away, I realize something. If it had been the yellow dress I'd worn in Mr. Dragan's studio, the one I used for that final painting, Dedication of the High Priestess, I would not have hesitated to keep it. Why I would want to, knowing what Mr. Dragon painted using the photos of me wearing it, I can't imagine. No, that's not true. I know why I would keep it. Because of how beautiful it was. How it looked both delicate and like armor. Because of what it felt like to wear it. How right it was. Like that dress was made for me, and I for the dress. Like we were meant to be together. And with that, I fall asleep. In my dream, I'm millions and millions of miles away from Earth, on a planet orbiting a star in the cluster known as the Hyades. I stand in the throne room of the palace in the decimated city of Carcosa. One wall of the throne room has completely fallen away, revealing a view of Lake Carcosa, once known as Lake Holly, before the city rose. I can see other cities on the edge of the massive lake. Hastur and Alar, And even Aldebaran. All long dead now and rotting away. How do I know all this? Because it's all a dream? Or because I've always known this information, deep in my subconscious, in my bloodline, in my very DNA, waiting for me, waiting for me to be ready. But that doesn't matter now. What matters is why I've come here. I turn towards my audience, the one person still living in this ruined city. He has waited a very long time for me. I can't keep him waiting any longer. I curtsy to the being sitting on the throne. I'm wearing the yellow dress again, as well as yellow tights and point shoes. Not only that, but my nails, my makeup, and my accessories are yellow as well. Even my arms and everything below my chin, including under my dress, have been painted yellow, all in honor of him. Music fills the throne room, eerie and hypnotic. I begin to dance, gesturing with my arms before jumping to the right. I then turn and do a series of steps before jumping to the left in a cabriolet, my legs slapping against each other in midair like a pair of scissors opening and closing. I land, bending my torso first one way and then the other. My foot moves in a rond de jambe half-circle while I arc my back, and my eyes rove over the ceiling floating overhead. The music grows faster and more frenetic, and with it the difficulty of the steps. Pirouette, grand jeté, fouette, one after the other. Some of these steps are more difficult than I should be able to do at my skill level, yet I'm accomplishing them with ease. It's like I've always known this dance like it's been hidden deep within my mind, waiting for me to need it. The music reaches its climax, and I match its intensity. Three long steps, and I jump into the air, spinning a full 360 degrees clockwise. A perfect tour in lair. I land, bend, and jump again, spinning counterclockwise 720 degrees. I land once more, do another rond de jambe, move onto my front leg, standing on point, and going into an arabesque. Then my back leg goes even further back, bending till my foot is over my head. I raise my arms above me, my fingers brushing against the sides of my point shoes. I hold this position for three, four, five beats as the music calms. Then the tempo and dynamics increase, and I'm spinning across the throne room in a big circle like a whirling dervish, past the throne, the crumbling columns, and the view of Lake Carcosa. I return to the center of the floor, bend, do another clockwise tour and Lair, a double tour and Lair counterclockwise, a pause in grand plié, and then finally, spin clockwise through the air, one, two, three, four, five times. I've beaten the record for tours and lair. Despite my age, my skill level, and even the laws of physics, I've done it. Václav Nijinsky has fallen short before a little girl not even in her teens yet. And I can thank him, my patron sitting on his throne, for this achievement. He blessed my ancestors, and through them, me. Only the women of my bloodline can dance this dance. It is for this dance of dedication that we are given the ability to dance. I land and, as the last notes of music play, fall slowly, gracefully, to the floor. My knees touch the flagstones, then I bend forward till my nose touches them as well. My arms extend forward and my hands cross. The final bow of the high priestess towards her master has been made. There is a moment of silence. Then it is broken by massive hands clapping. The king in yellow is clapping for me. Tears leak from my eyes, but not in happiness. I've come to my senses now and realized what I've done. My life as I've known it is over now. I have enslaved myself to him. That's what this dance is, a vow of eternal servitude to the king in yellow. I will serve him, my children will serve him, and there will be children much sooner than I ever expected, but I have no choice now. And their children will serve him too. On and on until the end of time in the universe itself. The king in yellow tells me without words to raise my head. I obey. He rises from the throne, his yellow hooded robe swirling around him. Covering his face is what appears to be a mask, "'but I know it's no mask. "'On his head sits a crown resembling antlers, "'and around his neck is a medallion with a symbol on it, "'the same symbol on the painting in the yellow room, "'the one made of multiple images of me. "'This symbol is known as the yellow sign. "'All who see it fall under the sway of the king in yellow, "'and that symbol, like the dance and the knowledge of Carcosa, "'has been part of me since well before I was born.' The king in yellow crosses the throne room and bends down towards me. Even bending, he is still taller than any normal man. I stare up into the mask that is not a mask, my eyes connecting with the eyes that stare out of the eye holes. "'Tis a fearful thing,' I whisper, to fall into the hands of the living God. The king in yellow's body rumbles his approval, and his massive hands pick me up and pull me into an embrace. I sit in the locker room at my ballet school and sigh. Dance is easier for me now, easier than it's ever been. Simple exercises and warm-ups are child's play, and I'm picking up more complicated stuff much faster than I ever have before. I'm not the only one aware of it either. The other girls in class notice it, as do the teachers. One even asked me to do some more advanced moves, and I pulled them off without any hesitation or misstep everyone was left in awe i'm sure the teachers are discussing moving me up a grade early they'll probably talk to my mom the next time she comes in for a conference i wish i could be happy about my progress in the week since the gallery's showing it's been the only thing that's gotten easier lately everything else has been difficult mr dragon is now an outcast in the city's ballet community Every school, every studio and company, and every model that used to work with him have cut ties with him. Not only that, but he's being investigated by the local police, probably on Millie's father's request, and there's been talk about a lawsuit against him. I know all this because Mom's been on the phone every night, talking with police and lawyers and board members of the ballet companies. She thinks I don't hear her talking, but the walls are thinner than she thinks. It would be nice if Mr. Dragan was suffering after everything he did, but he's not. In fact, from what I hear, he's doing even better than before. All his paintings sold for millions, his prints are selling faster than they can be printed, and that Clinkscale woman is now writing a series of articles about him and the production of The King in Yellow he's developing. I think Mr. Dragan's been calling my mom, too. Him or someone who works for him. I came home two days ago and heard my mom say, she will never star in his show, stop calling us, and then hang up. I asked her what it was about, but she told me not to worry about it. So, of course, I worry. I also worry about what everyone thinks of me now. Me and the other models. Word has gotten around in the ballet community, and even outside it, to the world of regular people. Me, Millie, Strawberry, and Connor have been the object of stares and whispers lately. I even get them at my regular school where people just know I take dance classes. A couple of times I've run off to bathrooms to cry. Millie cries every day. I've cried with her twice. This was not what any of us wanted when we agreed to be models. I wish I could say things get better when I'm asleep because at least then I can escape from the world and from my life. But every night I dream, and my dreams are always the same, of dancing the dance of dedication to the king in yellow and Carcosa. At the end of each dance, he applauds and pulls me into his arms. I'm more familiar with his hug now than I would ever want to be. And then every night he whispers a syllable to me, a syllable of his real name. Last night he gave me the final syllable, revealing to me his full name. All I need do now is whisper it, and he will come. He will come to Earth. He once had an empire on the planet where Carcosa stands, but that planet and its people's times have long passed. For the longest time he has been seeking to come to Earth and establish a new empire there. He sent my ancestors ahead of him, and they sowed the seeds for his arrival. They created ballet in imitation of the old style of worship in Carcosa, the one the king loved most of all, and made sure it became as widespread as it is now. They then wrote the play The King in Yellow, which was designed to pull all who read it or see it into the king's influence. Like Mr. Dragon was. He saw the play as a child, rediscovered it as an adult, and acted as the king's agent to bring more under his sway. Whether or not finding me and discovering my lineage was coincidence or plan, he also awoke those memories long buried in my bloodline while following his master's orders. And now, aware of the truth, and with my body and soul dedicated to the king, all I need do is dance and say his name and... And nothing will happen, I forcefully remind myself. They're just dreams. Carcosa isn't real, the king in yellow isn't real, and you're not some magic high priestess who will bring him to this world. They're all just ideas Mr. Dragon planted in your mind, like that magician in the YouTube videos you saw a while back. He used some psychology tricks to plant ideas in your mind and give you bad dreams. And now you're mistaking your own talent for some gift from an imaginary alien emperor. Do you know how crazy you sound? I want to agree with that voice, but at the same time, I'm afraid it's all real, and that the reason I skipped school and came to the locker room at the ballet school is not to think, as I told myself, but because I know it's real and inevitable. The King in Yellow will come, and I will lead him here. The door to the locker room opens. I jump. Sure, it's a staff member and that I'm going to get in trouble. Instead, Strawberry Fields walks in, sniffling and rubbing her eyes with a fist. She spots me and gives me a weak smile. Hi, Annie. What are you doing here? I hesitate and then say, Nothing, just thinking. About the gallery show? Strawberry asks. About Mr. Dragan and that stupid play of his? I freeze for a moment, then nod my head. She nods as well and sits beside me. Me too. I came here to think about it. That's all anyone talks about these days. She wraps an arm around my shoulders. And I think it's affecting people. Connor's been sick most of the week, and he blames that show. And I've been having weird thoughts since the other night. Especially when I think about that last piece, the one with you... And we're not the only ones. Other people who were there that night, they... Well, it's stupid, isn't it? It it was just some creepy art, an immune old man who tricked a bunch of us so he could make a buck. Nothing to get excited about. I'm overcome with terror for a second, but then I push it away. Of course I'm not the only one who was psychologically manipulated by Mr. Dragon. Other people were there and got the same tricks of the mind as I did. It only makes sense other people would be affected like I am. Or maybe, an insidious voice whispers, it's the start of his empire. An empire you will help him create. But hey, Strawberry says, pulling me out of my thoughts, it's going to be all right. We'll get past this. People forget about things quickly. I'm sure we will too. We'll forget about Mr. Dragon's show, train hard, get into famous ballet companies and one day they'll put our names right up there with Anna Pavlova and Bronislava Nijinska and all those other famous ballerinas, right? Mm, Right, I reply uncertainly. Of course right, Strawberry replies. Suddenly, tears well in her eyes. I've seen you dancing this past week, you know. You've really improved. It's almost scary by how much you've improved, and I'm sure you'll continue to do so. Who knows, if you keep it up, maybe they'll move you up to the same class as me. And then... Oh, God. The tears overflow, and Strawberry starts to sob. I sob, too, tears falling down my cheeks as we hold each other. Are we weeping because we're not as strong as we pretend to be? For the end of something precious? I don't know. But just like the night of the gallery show... I'm glad Strawberry's there to hug me, and then I get to hug her. We have ourselves a good long cry, and when we're done, Strawberry checks her phone. Crap, we better get changed. People are going to be arriving for classes soon. I'll do our makeup, too. That way people won't know you've been crying. I thank Strawberry and go to my assigned locker. When I open it up, I find somebody has left something in there for me. It's the yellow dress, the one I wore for Mr. Dragon's painting, along with matching tights and point shoes. Not only that, but there's accessories, makeup, and even fast drying body paint and a brush. On top of the dress is a note. I pick it up and read what it says. You know what to do with this, it says. It's signed CD. CD. Chase Dragon. I forgot. He's been part of this nearly his whole life, since he first saw the king in yellow performed in France as a kid. He knew who I was, who I was descended from, long before I did. Of course he would make sure this dress and everything I would need as the high priestess would arrive for me right as I learned the king's full name without anyone noticing. It's his way of saying it's time. The king must be summoned. Annie? Strawberry standing behind me with an odd look on her face. Terrified, but also confused. Then her expression changes, becoming weak and submissive. I... I should help you get ready. I want to tell her no. I want to take her hand and run out of here and never stop running. Instead, I nod my head and let her help me undress. When my clothes lie at my feet, Strawberry paints me yellow. Every inch below my chin is covered in paint. When it dries, she helps me into the dress, zipping up the bodice from the back. Again, I have the sensation of this dress being made for me, and I for it. And why shouldn't it feel this way? I'm the High Priestess, and this is what every High Priestess has worn throughout time. That feeling of rightness is part of the package. I lace up the point shoes while Strawberry does my hair and accessories. When that's over, I sit still as she applies makeup to my face, transforming me into the girl I appear as in my dreams. You're ready. You look amazing. Then she adds, after a hesitation, Your Holiness. I lift my hand. She kisses it before taking it and leading me out of the locker room. We step into one of the dance studios and she locks the door behind us. I warm up at the bar as Strawberry stands and waits in a corner. She's already accepted the inevitable and her part to play in this. I could resist, though. I could stop and put an end to all this before it's too late. But I don't have the will. I've already given my will to him. At least he loves me in his way. I sense that every time he embraced me. The king, alien creature that he is, does understand love and affection and does feel it for me. So there's that. When I'm done warming up, I cross to the center of the studio. On my right is the bar and the mirrors. In front and on my left are bare brown walls, and behind me is the hallway which is visible through transparent panes of glass. Pretty soon students will be coming down those halls. They will witness the beginning of the end. I take a deep breath and start to dance. Not the dance of the dedication, but a new dance that hugs the floor and represents the horrors about to begin. A dance made up there and then. A dance to welcome the king in yellow to earth. Like always, I feel that connection to something bigger than myself as I dance. Now I know what that something bigger is, though. It's destiny. The destiny of my ancestors and my descendants. I've been dancing with destiny this whole time and never knew it till now. If I had known... Well, I don't think it would have changed anything. Dance has always been too important for me. I couldn't give it up even if I tried. Outside the studio, students and teachers are gathering to watch. In one leap, I catch sight of Millie watching on in horror. I also spot the teachers by the door, trying to get in, but Strawberry has her hand on the bolts and is keeping it locked. Even if they did manage to get in, it wouldn't matter. I'm nearly at the end. I abandon the ground and do a couple of fouettes before coming to a stop. I look out at the people in the hall one last time. I spot so many familiar faces, including Mr. Dragan and Miss Clinkscales. Around their necks I see medallions with the yellow sign. Perhaps that's giving them invisibility because no one else seems to notice them, all eyes still on me. And while everyone looks confused and a little afraid, Mr. Dragan and Ms. Clinkscales' faces show just how eager they are to greet the king when he arrives. My eyes travel from the ponds and focus on Millie. She's watching me in pure terror. She knows what's going to happen. She knows what I'm about to do. We all have our roles, I say aloud. We all have our parts to play for the king in yellow. I turn towards the mirrors and say his real name, my arm outstretched. The king in yellow takes it, steps through the mirrors, and into his new empire.
2: That was Rami Unger's The Dedication of the High Priestess, as read by Amy Pownessa. Amy Pownessa has been the producer and host of The Bloodlust, a horror movie review podcast, since 2014. She has narrated stories for various other podcasts, including Knife Point Horror and The Alexandria Archives. She's thrilled to read for Tales to Terrify especially because she credits the podcast with reigniting her love of horror fiction. You can contact Amy through her website, thebloodlust.net. Thank you, Amy. Well, children of the night. The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now... Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Orion D. Hegre, Paul Belcher, Amanda Gottfried, and Kathy Robinson, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review you'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Join us again next week as we summon ancient gods with more tales to terrify
1: how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment